0: I confess, I find it extremely erotic watching my girl suck my dick. However, she doesn't know that I think about her getting fucked from behind while she sucks me off.
1: Uh, You have to tell her because what if she's imagining that too? Yeah, yeah. Nothing like a shared fantasy. I confess, my partner and I were almost late tonight. I was so deep licking their boy pussy that I almost passed out. <laughs> Looking forward to more after the show, XOXO. I like how you guys send Kay. each other messages from up here. Yeah. But also, don't pass out. Can you make sure you like eat and don't drink, don't drink a lot of booze tonight? Because like, I want more to that story. Yeah.
0: Come back next time and and uh, finish. Well, finish tonight. Obviously, um, I confess I love it when my boyfriend slaps me across the face when I'm going down on him. By the way, you can do it much harder than you did last night, honey.
1: Oh. <laughs>
0: everybody does it and almost nobody talks about it except at Bedpost Confessions, a storytelling show based in Austin, Texas. Whether the stories are funny, informative, political, or completely personal, the anonymous confessions from the audience are the stars of every show. Welcome to the Bedpost Confessions podcast. I'm Bedpost producer Sadie Smythe. This week, Clara Benson shares a story that parallels adolescent sexual discovery in a deeply conservative Christian family with the myth of the temptation of Eve in Forbidden Fruit. As usual, just a note before we hear from Clara, all Bedpost storytelling productions are made accessible to deaf audience members by the fantastic interpreters from Soul Illumination. Though the interpreters are there to serve the deaf, they enthrall the entire crowd with their beautiful expressions of American Sign Language. So if you hear a roar of laughter and don't understand why, the interpreter may have stolen the show for a minute. On with the show.
2: According to the rules of polite conversation, there is no faster way to make someone look for an exit route than to mention the fascinating dream you had last night. No one wants to hear about your dreams except for you and maybe, maybe you're a therapist (laughs) and and I say this because of course um, I am preparing to tell you about one of my recurring dreams and it's important for me to know for for me that you know that I am (laughs) self-aware it will be brief I promise I'm going to tell you about snakes So I've been dreaming about handling snakes for over a decade. Sometimes the snakes are slithering through the background in bit cameos, but most of the time I'm actively holding them. Sometimes I'm holding several. It isn't a phobia thing, not afraid of snakes. In the dreams, I recognize the dangers of being bitten, but I feel compelled to make contact anyway. For the longest time I did not think about the interpretation too deeply. I thought maybe it was a natural byproduct of a former Pacific Northwesterner living in Texas for fifteen years. And don't all (laughs) don't all former transplants go through a rattlesnake phase on their way to full boot wear and taco eating assimilation. Or, since you're probably already thinking it, I guess there's the more obvious dreams.com interpretation, which states that snakes often represent the phallus, so you can make of that what you will. But uh, recently, I've started to investigate what snakes symbolize to me at a deeper level. And to understand that, you have to understand where I came from. Um, I grew up in a deeply conservative, evangelical Christian family in Portland, Oregon, Uh, Our household hierarchy was very traditional with my father at the top. Then under him, my my mother in the role of submissive, long-suffering wife. Uh, We attended a televangelist mega-church three to five times a week. We did. We believed in angels, demons, and divine healing. We believed the earth was 6,000 years old. My brother and sisters and I were homeschooled all the way through high school graduation, primarily for religious reasons. So within this intense religious context, snakes have a very specific symbology that goes all the way back to the origins of Christianity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You did not think you were going to hear Bible verses tonight at bedpost, (laughs) did you? (laughs) Well, if you've forgotten or never had the pleasure of Sunday school lessons, the snake story goes like this. God creates a perfect planet and installs the first man and woman. He tells Adam and Eve they can walk around naked and have complete dominion over the earth forever, just as long as no one eats fruit from this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which will cause death. Eve promptly checks out the tree, and she meets the devil in the form of a a snake, So, the snake tempts Eve telling her she will not actually die if she eats the fruit, that in fact she will gain the powers of God, including knowledge. She eats the fruit. And she gives some to Adam who also eats it. God finds out and says, seriously, you had one job. (laughs) And this is how suffering is introduced to humanity through the weakness and disobedience of the first woman, who ate a piece of forbidden fruit on a reptile dare. <laughs> anyway, as a, as a young Christian girl, the threat of the snake loomed large, partly because there was still a lot of forbidden fruit to be resisted. One fruit in particular was more forbidden than all the rest, and that was sex. Sex. I don't remember my parents explicitly driving that message home. It was more like I picked it up through Christian osmosis. A thousand subtle religious cues that gradually formed a vague impression of something monumental and dangerous. Of course, even at an early age, I was curious. My mom taught me to read when I was four, and I used that knowledge when I found a 1973 kids' cartoon book titled, Where Did I Come From? In the Basement. I was fascinated by a naked man and woman Smiling at each other in a bubble bath Butts and boobs fully exposed The characters seemed comfortable, happy even Which was bewildering The book taught me the basic mechanics of heterosex But failed to explain why it was so dangerous So as a preteen, I continued to investigate the mystery By that time, we had dial-up internet I know you all remember that But it was limited to a Christian web browser, efaith.com, on a shared computer in the vast exposed territory of the family room. I would have chosen death over typing S-E-X on that thing. So I had to work with what I had. There were Victoria's Secret mailers pulled from the mail stack and studied before my mom could trash them. Sometimes I flip through books in our library of classic literature, scanning for the slightest allusion to sex. Hot tip, George Orwell's 1984 is a goldmine, if you're wondering. Also, I looked up definitions like intercourse and coitus in an actual hardbound Merriam Webster dictionary, which was just as disappointing as you might expect. By the time I reached high school, the church was beginning to take a more active role in sex education, and my amorphous sense of the forbidden transformed into something highly concrete. The basic gist was, sex outside the sanctity of marriage is very, very bad, (laughs) and can lead to all sorts of horrible things, especially if you're a girl. But sex within a God-ordained marriage is very, very good, and a core aspect of every healthy Christian marriage, despite previous negative associations and theoretically having zero physical experience with your new lifelong partner. <laughs> of course, our, uh, our sex ed was highly gendered. For a while, all the boys in my youth group were wearing rubber bands around their wrists at the guidance of one of the pastors. Yep. Whenever they had a sexual thought, they were supposed to snap the rubber band against their wrist, causing a minor sensation of pain. Even even as a teenager, I wondered if associating basic biological drives with pain and shame might cause problems down the road. But it was also kind of funny in a fucked up way. I I imagine horny Christian boys wandering around constantly thwacking themselves. Oh God, not another knee-leg skirt. (laughs) Girls did not have to wear rubber bands. Um, I guess it was assumed that we didn't have sexual imaginations, which was so wrong. The emphasis for us was on preserving our hymens and giving the boys fewer reasons to snap their rubber bands. (laughs) Several of my friends and I wore purity rings that publicly stated that we would save sex for marriage. At the mall, we would collectively sing modest is the hottest to each other (laughs) while trying on non-revealing outfits at Old Navy. Collectively, we worried that we'd never get to kiss anyone before the rapture. It was serious. When Jesus returned and escorted all Christians up to a presumably sex-free eternity in heaven. So, as one of those modest girls who wore a purity ring, you might assume that I would remember the first time I bit into that forbidden fruit. But the truth is, I do not remember the first time I had sex. By the end of high school, I could no longer ignore the growing doubts I had about fundamental Christianity. At that time, I met a boy who, like me, was trying to extricate himself from the church. I was 18. He was 23. We recognized the mutual skepticism in each other's eyes from across the pews. And we found it extremely hot. <laughs> we started secretly dating in a sort of purgatory state, not fully out of the megachurch community, but not fully in either. And of course, this made the subject of carnal knowledge highly fraught. It's definitely on our minds. Uh, but of all the biblical sins greed, murder, coveting thy neighbor's ox. We both knew. We knew that it was unrepentant sexuality that had the greatest power to make us outsiders in the only community that we had ever known. That's why in the beginning we did make an effort to be chaste. I'd say for at least a solid week or two. (laughs) But if the mind was willing the flesh was weak as they say and we soon became adept at half listening to the mechanical sound of the parental garage door rolling up signaling that we had exactly 45 seconds to throw on a t-shirt pretend to be deeply engrossed in a totally sin-free activity. We had entered what I call the world of escalating technicalities. Familiar to many a repressed Christian kid Technically, it was not a sin to be alone in his room, door shut, parents gone, because we weren't even doing anything. And technically, it was fine to straddle each other on his bedroom floor because our clothes were stolen, even my sweater, and I could barely feel his heart on through his jeans. (laughs) Technically, laying in bed, hands wandering under the covers, was within the general realm of chastity because full-on penis and vagina was not taking place. So, the reason I don't remember the first time I technically had sex is because it took six agonizing months for curiosity and desire to fully overrule 18 years of mental programming, the cult of virginity, the terror of our fully naked bodies, and the potential social shame of getting caught. By that time, we'd become such connoisseurs of screwing around that the dividing line of what was sex and what was not sex had become so paper thin, it was hardly there at all. I do not remember a single definitive act. There was no moment when virginity was lost. What I do remember is a continuum of sexuality and a slow but conscious choice to reach for that forbidden fruit. Now, as an adult, I can look back through an updated lens. I know, for example, that a 2009 study found that a whopping 80% of evangelical Christians ages 18 to 29 have had sex outside of marriage, despite an abundance of purity rings and rubber bands. (laughs) I can also recognize that the Christian obsession with purity is rooted in a long tradition of attempting to control women's bodies. Historically speaking, a woman who actively, enthusiastically pursues her own sexuality has been defined dangerous, an agent of chaos like Eve. And I think that's why I dream about snakes. I don't define myself as a Christian anymore, but that old creation myth about Eve in the garden still runs deep. It's part of my cultural origins And to this day, biblical metaphors are often the first reference that comes to mind when I'm trying to explain something, which is awesome at cocktail parties, let me tell you. (laughs) But as a writer, it becomes a question of how to integrate the symbols in a way that is relevant to who I have become. So recently, I've returned to that garden, to my origin story. And here's what I want to know. What if we got Eve all wrong? (laughs) What if listening to the snake and eating the forbidden apple was not the event that ruined the perfection of the world, but actually the first recorded act of patriarchal rebellion? The first act of a woman doing something she was told she could not do. What if curiosity, hunger, and bodily knowledge are, in fact, a critical survival skill for a woman born second into a body forever viewed as a flawed, untrustworthy derivative of the original man? If you look at the myth through this lens, the snake actually becomes an ally. So when I dream about snakes now, I see a powerful symbol of conscious transgression that integrates both my past and my future. Last year, on my 30th birthday, I decided to honor that transformation by walking into an embroidery shop in Manhattan and asking for, quote, the biggest ass snake possible on the back of a jacket. And when it was finished, a woman at the shop asked what it meant to me. It would have taken way too long to explain that it was a symbolic reckoning with the gender and power dynamics of my evangelical heritage. So I just smiled and said, I like snakes. And then I walked out the door with the devil on my back.
0: Clara Benson is an author and visual artist. Interests include experimental photography, performance art, intersectional feminism, flora, flannery, land art, and morbid humor. Her travel memoir, No Baggage, has been translated into 14 languages, garnered international press, and has been optioned for a film by New Line. I confess, one of my favorite places to have sex is on Mount Benel overlooking the homes of the
1: oblivious rich people. (laughs) Or not so oblivious. Aren't they, like, rich people really into, like, telescopes and stuff? (laughs) Hmm. I confess, I'm here with someone I've had countless sex dreams about, but they don't see me that way. Frown face. Maybe tell them about your dream. No,
0: I don't know. Just a thought. I confess, I orgasmed while on the phone with AT&T.
1: <laughs> they put me on hold too long. It was that Muzak wasn't it? Just did it for you? Get you going. Get you going. I confess, I lost my virginity to my best friend's boyfriend. It's 30 years later, and she still doesn't know. That is a true confession right there. Maybe just keep that one to
0: us. (laughs) I confess one of my children came home unannounced while we were having an orgy. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure how much she really knows, and I'm afraid to ask her. Bed post confessions is recorded in front of a live audience at the north door in austin texas to support the show consider purchasing an i confess t-shirt tote or journal all available at bedpostconfessions.com follow at confessions on instagram and facebook for more audience confessions and for all up-to-date information on our live performances bedpost confessions is produced by myself sadie Smythe, and miranda wiley Our podcast production team is Mariah Gossett and Mike Moody and Permanent Record Studios. And we want to hear from you. Leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts like this one from Yes, Please. Quote, the best sex storytelling show. I love the anonymous confessions. I love the range of stories from funny, sexy to downright dirty and vulnerable. End quote. Until next time, keep confessing.